Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, you are in a story in the Bible. In fact, you're in several stories in the Bible. You say, Frank, what are you talking about? Well, we're going to get into it today. In fact, let me start with this question. What is the most important thing about you? What is it? Is it your gender? Is it your bank account? Is it your job? Is it who you're married to or not married to or uh, your family? Or is it your politics? Is it uh, any one of a number of things you can think about? What is the most important thing about you? According to A.W. Tozer, a pastor and author who lived a couple of generations ago, said he said this, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Do you think about an old man on a hill or an old man on a cloud or a judgmental, fierce deity ready to smite you whenever you do something wrong? Or do you think of a benevolent grandfather type who just wants everybody to have a good time, as C.S. Lewis said? That's what a lot of people in today's culture want God to be, this kind of senile, benevolent deity out there who's just looking down on us, hoping that each one of us just has a good time. Do you think about the man upstairs? You know, people refer to the man upstairs. God is not a man upstairs, ladies and gentlemen. But what do you think about when you think about the word God? Who is this being? Well, there are many things that are true of God that aren't true of us. God is all-knowing. We have knowledge. He is knowledge. God is all-powerful. We have power. He is power. He has all power. God is all-loving. Of course, we are not. We have love. He is love. God is all-just. We have justice. He is justice. God is infinite in every attribute. And he is someone that sets the standard, or is the standard, I should say, for everything that is good, right, true, and perfect, and beautiful. God is that standard. Now, when you think about God relating to you, do you think that God loves me more because I'm a good person? Or do you think God loves me more because I'm better than so-and-so, your neighbor, your friend, your family member, your coworker, or do you think after I, oh, after all, all I do for God here, after all I do for God, God owes me. Is that what you think about God? Or maybe, and that's kind of the uh, the positive way of looking at God—that God is looking down and saying, 
well, if you're a pretty good person, I'm going to make your life easier. Or you might, you might think of God the opposite way. You might think, well, man, after all I've done, God hates me. Or God could never accept me because of all these things I've done. Or I really need to work harder for God to accept me. Is that really the truth? Is that what God is all about? That God is judging you and approves of you if you're good and he hates you if you're bad. And if you do more good things, then God loves you more. And if you do bad or evil things, God hates you and likes you less. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there's something out there known as the curse of fake knowledge. What's the curse of fake knowledge? It's this. It's not what we don't know that is always the problem. The bigger problem is what we think we know that really ain't so. Yeah, that's the bigger problem. What we think we know that really ain't so. And I think both of those views of God, the kind of God that says, well, I love you more if you're obeying me, and I love you less if you're not obeying me, is fake knowledge. That's not the kind of God that the Bible talks about. In fact, the kind of God that the Bible talks about is most, I think, clearly expressed in one of the most famous parables that Jesus ever told. And it's the parable of the prodigal son. It comes from Luke chapter 15. And I want to look at that parable in a little bit more detail than what you might normally do when you're just reading through it. I want to analyze it a little bit today because you are in this parable. I am in this parable. All people are in this parable. In fact, we are in all parables. That is the power of the parable. In every parable, there's at least two characters. God is in every parable and you are in every parable. I am in every parable. Everyone that hears the parable is in the parable. Now, what is a parable? It's a story that tries to make some sort of theological or moral point or both. And these stories aren't necessarily actual stories of real-life events. For example, in the parable of the prodigal son, which we'll get into, If you were to ask Jesus, well, what are the names of these people? When did this happen? That's not the point of the parable. Or the parable of the Good Samaritan. What was the name of the priest that passed by the Good Samaritan? What was the Good Samaritan's name? That's not the point of the parable. Whether these things really happened or not, that's not the issue. The issue is Jesus is using a story to try and communicate a theological or moral truth that everybody needs to get. And these parables help expose people to the truth even when they're not looking, even when they don't want to be exposed to the truth. And that's what parables do. Now, whenever you look at anything in the Bible, you've got to know the context. In fact, we teach a class, an online class called How to Interpret Your Bible. If you go to crossexamine.org and click on Uh, click on online courses, you'll see it there. And uh, whenever you try and interpret a passage in the Bible, I think you always have to stop 
to figure out what's going on. And STOP is an acronym. S-T-O-P. This is what we teach in this course. I'm going to give you a, <laughs> the three-minute version of this right now. S stands for what's the situation. T stands for what's the type of literature. O stands for who is the object of the passage? Is the object ancient Israel? Is the object just people say in the church in Corinth? Or is the object all people everywhere? And P stands for is this passage prescriptive or descriptive? Because there's a lot of things in the Bible that are just descriptive. It's just telling you what happened. There's no prescription for us. For example, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. That's a description. It is not a prescription. It, 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 it's not there to tell us that we ought to commit adultery. If anything, it's saying don't do that because of the consequences and the fact that it's wrong and it violates God's law. But it's really just a description of what happened. And too many people, I think, don't realize this distinction. There's a lot in the Bible that is descriptive and not prescriptive. So whenever you look at a passage, you need to stop, figure out the situation. What's going on in the passage? T, what type of literature is this? Is this an historical account? Is this prophecy? Is this poetry? Is this law? Is this a parable? Is this an allegory? I mean, you've got to figure out what the type of literature is. If, it's, if you're going to figure out what it means. And then who is this to? Is it to me? Is it to ancient Israel? Is it to both? And is it prescriptive or descriptive? And when we come back, we're going to look at the most famous parable. I think the parable that communicates the main truth of the Bible more than anything other and who God really is. It's the parable of the prodigal son. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. story in the Bible has you in it? Well, actually, there are several stories in the Bible that have you in it. They're called parables. And today, we're looking at one of the most famous parables Jesus ever spoke. It is the parable of what we call the prodigal son. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. And as I mentioned, this parable, this story actually is in Luke chapter 15, and it begins in verse 11. But in order for us to stop and get the context of the passage, uh, we need to go earlier than verse 11. Why? Let's go through the acronym again, S-T-O-P. S stands for situation. What's the situation? Why is Jesus even telling this parable? And let me back up further for a second before we get into this. There are no verses in the Bible. I know that sounds odd, but there are no verses in the Bible. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. When when Luke was writing his biography of Jesus, we call a gospel. Do you think he went, okay, here's chapter 15, verse 1, or here's chapter 15, verse 11? No. The chapter and verse divisions were put in the Bible about 500 years ago to help us navigate the text, which is important, right? It would be really difficult to find your way around this long series of books if you didn't have numbers. Imagine if your Bible didn't have numbers and you went to church one Sunday and the pastor said, let's go about two-thirds of the way in. Let's see if we can find the same spot. 
right? You go, <laughs> that's not going to work, man. We need more detail than that. We're not going to be able to find the same spot. We need some numbers to help us navigate. Okay, good. Let's put chapter and verse divisions in there. That's a good thing. The problem is we tend to think if it's got a number in front of it, we can make it out. We can take it out and make it say whatever we want. We don't need any context. You can't do that with the Bible. About the only place you probably can do that relatively uh, harmlessly is maybe the book of Proverbs because Proverbs are meant to be these standalone statements. But other than that, you need to know the context. You need to know the situation. And I know I'm going to make some of you mad now, but I'm just telling you the truth. Jeremiah 29.11 does not apply to you or me. Jeremiah 29, 11. Oh, the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. You know that passage in, back in Jeremiah? Why does it not apply to us? Because it's not written to us. It's not a prescription for us. It's actually a prescription for people that lived 2,600 years ago under Nebuchadnezzar in what is modern-day Iraq. It, it's written to the exiles who went to Babylon. It's not written to... 21st century American Christians or anybody in the 21st century, other than to tell us what God did with his people back 2,600 years ago. It does tell us something about the character of God, so it applies to us in that regard. It gives us a good historical, good historical knowledge, and it tells us about the character of God. But it's not a promise to us. It's a promise to the people that lived 2,600 years ago. And, w- and when people quote Jeremiah 29, 11, I often ask them, why are you quoting Jeremiah 29.11 as if it applies to you? Why don't you quote Jeremiah 44.11? Why? What is Jeremiah 44.11? Who's that written to? Well, Jeremiah 44.11 is, is what God said he would do to the exiles that went to Egypt. Jeremiah 29.11 is what God said he would do to the exiles that went to Babylon Jeremiah 44.11 is what God said he would do to the Gentiles who went to Egypt. And God told these people, don't go to Egypt, but they went anyway. So here's what Jeremiah 44.11 says. I will destroy you and all Judah. You don't see that stitched into a pillow. You don't see that on a birthday card. Happy birthday. You open the card up. It says, I will destroy you and all Judah. Jeremiah 44, 11. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. Thank you so much, Grandma. No, you don't see that on a birthday card or stitched into a pillow or on a poster somewhere or in a needle point on a wall. Why do we have Jeremiah 29, 11 there? You see, we're taking things out of context and we, we're trying to make them say what we want them to say to us when they don't. And the same thing is true when you're looking at a parable. Look, if you want the Jeremiah 29:11 to us today, the closest thing we have is Romans 8:28. We know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. Notice he doesn't say all things are good. He doesn't say you're going to prosper here on earth. What he's saying is is that any evil that happens to you if you're in Christ can be turned to good if not in this life in in eternity. He's not saying all things are good or everything that's going to happen to you is good. He's saying ultimately it will work together for good. In any event, let's go back to our our parable here. And again, this is in Luke chapter 15. If we're going to get the right situation, the S and stop, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter. And here's what it says in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners 
were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Okay, so here's the context. The context is, the situation is, that Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. He's talking to them. Uh, He's welcoming them. And the Pharisees are put out. The Pharisees are grumbling. The The Pharisees are muttering that this guy should not be eating or welcoming these sinners. So that's the, that's the context. That's the situation. And then it says, then Jesus told them this parable. Now, Jesus actually tells them three parables in a row. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We don't have time in this broadcast to talk about the lost sheep and the lost coin. We're just going to concentrate on the lost son. But you can see that there's a, there's a pattern here. He's talking about things that are lost. So Jesus is responding to what the Pharisees were muttering by telling these three parables in a row. All right? Now, uh, in our acronym, STOP, S-T-O-P, the situation is what we just described. Jesus is responding to the Pharisees muttering. The T, the type, this is a parable. So it's a story with a theological or moral point. The O, the object. In every parable, there's at least two characters. God is in the parable, and you are in the parable. I am in the parable. We're all in the parable. And sometimes there is a third party in the parable, and in this case, there is. Who's the third party in the parable? The Pharisees. That's why Jesus is telling these parables. He's responding to them. Okay, so let's take a look at the parable. And there are two acts to the parable. There's act one which is the younger brother. This is what we often think about when we think of this parable. We think about the younger brother, the prodigal son. Here's what the text says. There was a man who had two sons. Okay, so it's not just about one son, it's about two. Verse 12, the younger one said to his father, Father, give give me my share of the estate. Now, all right, stop right there. For a son in this culture to say to his father, give me my share of the estate. That's like saying, dad, I want you dead because I want your stuff. It was one of the most insulting things a father could hear from a son. Give me my share of the estate. Now, how much would the younger son get in this culture? The younger son would only get a third because the older son in a two-son household got a double portion. So the older son would get two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would get one-third of the estate. Now, as soon as the younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate, what do you think the Pharisees are thinking? Remember, Jesus is responding to them. Pharisees are probably thinking, you crazy? You tell this boy In fact, you better get a bat and run this or a stick or whatever they had back then and run this kid out of the house. How dare he ask for the father, for his estate now? Have some respect, father. Don't give in to this kid. He's an incorrigible kid. That's insulting to say, give me my share of the estate. It's like saying, dad, I want you dead. That's what the Pharisees are thinking, right? That's probably what I'm thinking. It's probably what you're thinking. How insulting is that? Can't do that. 
But that's not how the father responded. What did the father say? The father said, so, or the parable tells us, so the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. That's what prodigal means. It means to, to be wasteful, to just go out and live it up. So he, he squandered his wealth in wild living. And then after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, look, ladies and gentlemen, God gives us free will. Why? Because in order to love, we have to have free will. Uh, We can't love if we don't have free will. The problem is free will, while it gives us the opportunity to love, also gives us the opportunity to hate or to do evil. And God gives you the free will so you have the opportunity to love, but he also respects your free will when you want to do it for evil or use it for evil. So God's not going to stop you from making bad choices. And this kid made a bad choice. In fact, a couple of chapters earlier in Luke 12, Jesus says, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. But this kid thought, if I can get the possessions, I'm going to be happy. So God allows you to make a free choice. He will let you squander your life on anything you decide to squander it on. And like the father here, as we'll see, he's always ready to welcome you back. There's just one problem with that. Like the father, he can only welcome you back if you are willing to come back and if you survive. In other words, if you're still alive. This kid was in a bad way. He was in a severe famine. He had blown everything he had, had, all the money he had, all the, the father had given him. He had blown it. And now he's in a bad way. So the text says this, verse 15, Luke 15, 15. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Time out. Wait a minute. Here's a Jew. And he's going to feed pigs. Well, pigs were considered unclean animals. This guy has really fallen to a low level in his life. If he's now trying to survive by feeding pigs unclean animals, so much so that he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. That's what the next verse says. Where's this going to wind up? We'll see. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're talking about the prodigal son parable. Actually, prodigal son. We'll get into it more right after the break. Don't go anywhere. Back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, stories are powerful. They grab people. And in fact, what we're talking about today is one of the greatest stories in the Bible. The story of the prodigal son. Actually, the man had two sons, and we're going to get into it and look at the other son here in just a minute. But this story is a story that has all of us in it. You're in this story. I'm in this story. God is in this story. It turns out the Pharisees are in this story. Where are you in the story? We'll get to it. And stories are so powerful that actually many of these 
stories like this are what make movies so attractive to us. And my son and I have just written a new book. It's called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. This book does not come out, actually, till May 3rd. However, if you go to HollywoodHeroesBook.com, that's HollywoodHeroesBook.com, you'll see what the book is all about. And if you pre-order the book, we are going to send you the audio version now, within the next few days, for free. So pre-order the book before May 3rd. Again, HollywoodHeroesBook.com. And we're going to send you the audio version of the book for free, only up till May 3rd. After that, once the book's out, you got to buy the audio book if you're interested in that. And this is a great book that will help you use stories your kids already know to get them more interested in God and Christianity. Here are some of the, the stories or the movie franchises we look at. Uh, we look at Captain America, Iron Man, Harry Potter. Harry Potter, are you kidding me? Yeah, you would be surprised. Also, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Batman, Wonder Woman, all of these heroes, by the way, all these movie franchises, the characters in these movies, they all point to the ultimate hero. Who's the ultimate hero? Jesus of Nazareth. Now, most of these movies weren't made with that in mind, but they can't help pointing to the ultimate hero because the greatest story ever told is the true story The true story known as the Christian story, that God actually added added humanity to his deity, came to earth, took the punishment upon himself, inflicted on him by the very creatures he created that rebelled against him, so he wouldn't have to punish them. And that's what this prodigal son parable is going to show us here in just a minute. Anyway, check out HollywoodHeroesBook.com. You'll see a little little movie trailer uh, on it out there. And as I say, order it now uh, before May 3rd to get the audio book for free. Okay, we're back to Luke 15 here. And the prodigal son is now hiring himself out to feed pigs. And verse 16 says, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Look, sometimes we've got to get lower than pigs to come to our senses, right? I mean, that's where this guy was. He's a Jew feeding pigs who he considers an unclean animal. And not only is he feeding pigs, he wants to eat what they are eating. And this just goes to show you the deceitfulness of sin. That people think, oh, if I only had money, if I only had sex, if I only had power, I'd be happy. So, Dad, give me the money now. Let me go out and hang out with prostitutes and, and just have a grand old time. This is deceitful. Why? Look, sex, money, and power are all good things. But they're so good that sometimes we'll take shortcuts to get them. And they're so good that sometimes we'll set them up as idols. And, 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 and we think that they, those three things, are somehow going to make us happy. In fact, going back to the movie thing for a second, you look at a character like Tony Stark in Iron Man. Tony Stark has everything we think that's going to make us happy. He's got the women. He's got the, uh, the power. He's got the money. And as Robert Downey Jr. actually says about the character himself, he's spiritually dead. He's dead inside. He has an identity problem. He's got everything to live with and nothing to live for. The only way that he actually becomes a whole person is when he realizes there are things out there bigger than himself. 
there's there there's a cause out there bigger than sex, money, and power. And spoiler alert, if you if you follow the character all the way through uh, Avengers Endgame, Tony Stark, who starts out in Iron Man as a selfish playboy, actually turns into a selfless sacrifice in Endgame when he gives his life to defeat Thanos and he saves the world in doing that. But the guy you first meet in Iron Man, the amoral playboy billionaire arms dealer, he he's not that guy by the time he gets to Endgame. He's been transformed. He realized that sin was deceitful and it didn't give him what he really wanted. Now, in movies, obviously, they're not going to say God is the ultimate. But in life, God is the ultimate. God is what we ought to be pursuing. And all the other things will be added unto us. There is a deceitfulness of sin. Sin always promises more than it takes, or I should say, sin always promises more than it gives. It takes you further than you wanted to go, and it leaves you worse off than you were before. So this prodigal son has wasted everything his father gave him, and he hired himself out, and he's feeding pigs, and now he's eating, wants to eat what they have. And in verse 17, it says this, when he came to his senses, I know you're probably thinking of people you know who are doing this wild, who are living wildly, or are living not in line with what how God wants them to live, and uh, you're going, when are you going to come to your senses? Well, sometimes you Sometimes you can't uh, force that. Sometimes it, you, you tell them the truth. They don't want to hear it. At, at some point, hopefully, just keep praying. They're going to come to their senses. Well, this kid finally came to his senses, and he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. He got up. right? You, sometimes you can't make people get up. No matter how hard you try, they're unmotivated. All you can do is pray for them, tell them the truth and love them, and then hope the Holy Spirit continues to work on them to, to the point where the person finally says, look, I'm going to get up. I'm going to come to my senses, get up, and fix this. So he's going to go to his father and basically apologize and say, look, I know I'm not worthy of being your son, but just, just take me back. Now, what do you think the Pharisees are thinking when this kid goes home? Oh, this better be good. I don't think the father ought to take him back. He blew it. He knew the consequences. Don't take him back, father. Don't, don't, don't do it. So he goes back. He goes to his father, and here's what he's going to say. Hang on a second. He says, I kind of lost my place here in the parable. Sorry. Father, he wants to say, I've sinned against you. And so he's on his way back, and here's what the text says. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, 
threw his arms around him and kissed him. All right, timeout, timeout, timeout. <laughs> Wait a minute. He ran to his son? Look, in that culture, men didn't run. That was undignified to run. You would have to hike up your robe to run. Kids may have ran. Maybe moms ran, but, but, but fathers didn't run. But this father was so filled with compassion, he ran to his son and threw his arm, arms around him. Now, why do you think, while he was, it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and ran out to him? Well, actually, there was a, a custom that the Jewish people had. It was a ceremony they would perform if somebody had done this and separated himself from the family for whatever reason, separated himself from the community due to sin, they would meet the guy at the gate and break a large pot in front of him and yell, you have broken the relationship. You are now cut off from your people. The com- in other words, the community would totally reject him. I think the father was running out to beat those people to the gate. He saw his son, so he hiked his, skir- his, his, his robe up, and he ran out there to prevent further embarrassment to the son. And he threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He is lost. He was lost, but, but, but now he's found. So they began to celebrate. This is who God really is. He's not loving you more because you obey him. He's not loving you less or, say, hating you because you disobey him. His arms are always open. He's going to run to you if you're ready to repent. And he's going to put the best robe on you. Now, when we become Christians... We're putting on the robe of Christ. So when God sees us, he doesn't actually see us or our sins. He sees Christ. So this is a, a way of saying that God is forgiving you. The Father's forgiving you. He's accepting you back as if you've never sinned. He's putting a ring on your finger, sandals on your feet. He's going to slay the fatted calf and celebrate. They're going to feast. In other words, God's grace is lavish. God loves you infinitely. You can't change that by sinning. You know, I know it's going to sound weird, but you can't make God love you more by obeying him, and you can't make God love you less by disobeying him. God's an infinite being. He loves you as much as he can already. The reason that you obey him is out of love for what he's done for you not out of slavish obligation to some kind of law. He's not wanting you to be nice. He's wanting you to be new. And once you're new, you'll be nice because of what Christ has done for you. You're adopted as a son or daughter. You can share in the Father's kingdom by accepting his offer of grace. He's going to give you the best robe. He's going to put the ring on your finger, the sandals on your feet. He's going to bring the fatted calf and kill it for you. That's what this parable is saying. 
and there's a lot more to it. We're going to cover it right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist on the American Family Radio Network. By the way, this is a podcast as well called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So if you want to hear this again, just check it out. I'm Frank Turek. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. We're talking about the story you are in in the Bible. We're all in it. It's called the parable of the prodigal son. There's really two sons in this one, though. So now let's go to verse 25 in Luke chapter 15. This is right after the father has accepted the son back and lavished him with everything, including slaying the fatted calf and celebrating this son. Here's what it says. Meanwhile, back on the ranch, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, the older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. Now notice, doesn't this older son think he's owed something by the father? He doesn't like the father's grace, does he? No, he thinks... That this son of yours, notice he doesn't call him his own brother. This son of yours has squandered everything with all your property, with prostitutes. Then then you celebrate. You kill the fatted calf. You never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. This is unjust. Now, remember, who, who, why is Jesus telling this story? Because the Pharisees were muttering about why Jesus is hanging out with sinners and welcoming them. So the Pharisees are, are thinking, yeah. This is unjust. This shouldn't happen. This older brother, this elder brother, he has a point. Ladies and gentlemen, remember I said at the beginning of this parable that you're in it and God is in it. God is in every parable. You're in every parable. And sometimes there's a third character in a parable. Who's the third character in this parable? The Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees in the parable? The old, they're the elder brother in the parable. They're the self-righteous one saying, you can't give grace to these people. They don't deserve it. Well, of course you don't deserve grace. Grace isn't deserved. That's the whole point. Get it? But here's what the father says back to the son. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. Notice what he says here. Everything I have is yours. Ladies and gentlemen, that's true of me and you. If if we're Christians, everything God has is ours. We're adopted as sons and daughters into his kingdom. You can share in the Father's kingdom by accepting his offer of grace. And ultimate salvation will be like a feast, a great celebration. Until then, we are to do the work of the Messiah here on earth. Now, notice, there's Act 1. Act 1 in this parable is the lost son. Act 2 of this parable is the son that stays home. Who's lost in this, by the way? Who? Well, they're both lost. 
You see, it's not just the, it's not just the kid that runs off and, and does wild living. It's the guy that stays home, the elder brother, who thinks God or the father owes him. We might as well reveal who the characters are. Who are the characters in the parable? Who, who is, uh, who's the father playing? The father is playing God. Who is the elder brother in the parable? That's the Pharisees. Who's the younger brother in the parable? That's someone that runs away and wants to live his own life and, and, and wants to run from God. You see, the father is God. The younger brother represents the sinners and the elder brother represents the Pharisees. Now, here's my question. Who represents you in the parable? Are you like God in the sense that you've already accepted his grace and now you are going out to welcome everybody into the kingdom? Or are you a younger brother? Are you running from God and want to have nothing to do with him? You want God to give you things, but you don't really love him. Or are you like an elder brother? You think, well, you're better than those liberals. You're better than those Democrats. Or you're better than those other people. Or you're better than those sinners. You're better than those atheists. You're better than all these people who you think are outside the kingdom. And God owes you because you're so good. If that's what you think, might not even be a Christian. What? Yeah, because this parable is actually telling us what Christianity is all about. It's telling us who you should think God is when you think of the word God. God is the father in the parable. He's ready to accept you back no matter what you've done. He loves you infinitely already. You see, neither son really cared what the father wanted. They didn't care about their father. They cared about what the father gave them. Look, both were lost. One was lost through bad works, and one was lost through good works. You can be lost by doing good works because you're really doing good works not for God. You're doing good works for yourself. Now, you're saying, well, shouldn't, doesn't God want, to, want us to be moral? Yes, God wants us to act morally as a result of salvation, not as a means to salvation. We act morally out of love for God, not to earn our way to him. Now, this was illustrated so well in real life by Billy Graham. Billy Graham was, as you know, the person that probably talked to more people about Jesus than anybody in history. And an event occurred in Billy Graham's daughter's life. Her name was Ruth. And at Billy Graham's funeral, she told a story, and you will see Billy Graham acting like the true father, acting like God wants us to act. And what I'm going to do now is play you what she actually said at her father's funeral. Here's Ruth Graham, the daughter of Billy Graham. I have my own Billy Graham story, so I'm going to tell you that one. And I've told it many times, and some of you have maybe heard it many times. But it bears repeating because, to me, it speaks to the essence of who my father was and is. After 21 years, my marriage ended in divorce. I was devastated. I floundered. I did a lot wrong. The rug was pulled out from under me. My family thought it'd be a good idea for me to move away, to get a fresh start somewhere else. So I decided to live near my older sister 
and her family and near a good church. The pastor of that church introduced me to a handsome widower and we began to date fast and furiously. My children didn't like him, but I thought, you know, they were almost grown. They didn't know what they could, they couldn't tell me what to do. I knew what was best for my life. My mother called me from Seattle. My father called me from Tokyo. They said, honey, why don't you slow down? Let us wait to get to know this man. They had never been a single parent. They had never been divorced. What did they know? So being stubborn, willful, and sinful, I married a man, this man, on New Year's Eve. And within 24 hours, I knew I'd made a terrible mistake. After five weeks, I fled. I was afraid of him. What was I going to do? I wanted to go talk to my mother and my father. It was a two-day drive. Questions swirled in my mind. What was I going to say to Daddy? What was I going to say to Mother? What was I going to say to my children? I'd been such a failure. What were they going to say to me? You, we, we're tired of fooling with you. We told you not to do it. You've embarrassed us. And let me tell you, you women will understand you don't want to embarrass your father. You really don't want to embarrass Billy Graham. <laughs> and many of you know that we live on the side of a mountain. And as I wound myself up the mountain, I rounded the last bend in my father's driveway, and my father was standing there waiting for me. As I got out of the car, he wrapped his arms around me and he said, welcome home. There was no shame, there was no blame, there was no condemnation, just unconditional love. And you know, my father was not God, but he showed me what God was like that day. When we come to God with our sin, our brokenness, our failure, our pain and our hurt, God says, welcome home. And that invitation is open for you. Thank you and God bless you. That invitation is open to all of us, ladies and gentlemen. Look, you only have three choices. You can run from Jesus, like the prodigal son. You can work to Jesus, like the elder brother in the parable, but you're never going to work your way to him because he's perfect, and if you've already sinned, you're never going to get there. Or you can rest in Jesus. Those are the three choices we all have. Run, work, or rest we rest in Jesus and because we rest in Jesus and because we know what great sacrifice he had to pay with his own life to save us it's out of that sacrifice that we love him and then we will want to work for him not to him but for him as a result of the salvation that he's provided us. Our motivation shouldn't be, oh, I got to obey all these laws. No, no. Our motivation is, I want to obey my master. I want to obey my Lord. I want to obey the God that loved me. I want to obey the Father that came running for me, even though I've done all these evil things.
no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter what your past is, God is ready to accept you back. He's ready to run to you as long as you're ready to come back to Him. Have you done that? Hope you have. I'm Frank Turek. Great being with you today. I'll be here again tomorrow. Check out our website, crossexamined.org. See you tomorrow.